Here begins the reading of God's holy word from Mark, the seventh chapter, verses 14 through 23. Again, Jesus called to the crowd, to him, and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Thank you, Latoya. Those of you who have been attending for a while know that we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, the record of how God entered our broken world and began the process of restoration. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, based on the direct experience and witness of the disciples. Mark, although it's called Mark, uh, is the record of what Peter saw. And Peter was a fisherman, uneducated, illiterate, and it is amongst the simplest writing in the Bible, very direct, very vivid, very immediate, as you would expect of an uneducated man of action, a doer. He tells us what Jesus did. He tells us without elaboration, without attempt at explanation, he just says Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he said this. Great place to go to get an eyewitness account. And we've seen how Jesus began his ministry, how he began to teach, how he began to do miracles and demonstrate his authority and power how he would heal people and perform miracles, how he gathered together a group of 12 disciples and begins to train them to take on his mission when he returns to the Father. Um, and this, this passage is, is part of what we looked at last week. This is chapter 7, and we saw last week that Israel has woken up to the presence of Jesus in its midst Jesus primarily ministered in the north of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. That's where the fishermen were. And he started to gather large crowds, peasant people leaving their fields, leaving their work, to come out and listen to this new preacher, this new teacher, this miracle worker. And so the leaders come up from Israel, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the elite of Israel, to see what he's about. And we saw last week them confront him, challenge him on the behavior of his disciples. They were not following the ceremonial laws. They were not ceremonially washing. And Jesus' response to them was, you are nullifying the gospel. You are nullifying the word. You misunderstand. 
You have turned God, the majestic creator of all the universe, into the God of pots and pans, how you wash, how you clean, how you do the mundane things of life. And then what we see here is the very next thing. He's been confronted by the, the Pharisees. He, he responds to them, you are nullifying the word. And then we get to verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. So he's up in the north. He's teaching. The Pharisees challenge him. And now Jesus Ask everybody around to listen. Understand this. What I'm about to say is important. Pay attention. This is a new teaching. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, it's not much to read, but this is the core of the gospel. This is the message that Jesus wanted the leaders of Israel to hear. He wanted his disciples to understand, and he wanted the crowds to hear. So what is he talking about? It all um, is based on the, this word, defile. This is the center of what Jesus is talking about. So what does defile mean? Well, it's actually a little strange. Defile is the English translation of the Greek word koinose, which means common or ordinary. The root word is koine. Some of you may know that the New Testament is written in koine Greek. That means it is written in the ordinary, common language of the people. So what is Jesus talking about? Why is there a problem with being common or ordinary? Why would that be translated defile? I mean, after all, didn't Jesus become an ordinary human being? Aren't all his disciples ordinary, common men? Why would this be perceived common or ordinary? Why would that be a negative thing? Now, to understand this, I think this is one of those times where you just have to slow down. Instead of being enmeshed in the individual words and, and verses here, you have to stand, stand back and look at the big picture of the Bible to understand what Jesus is saying here. Remember, this is a core teaching He's saying, pay attention. So it's appropriate to slow down and understand to make sense of this. So what is the big teaching of the Bible? What is the big picture? Well, it's about God. It begins with God in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Who or what is God? Well, certainly the heavens declare the glory of God. But the specifics of God are revealed in his word. And what does the Bible reveal about God? It reveals his character. It reveals his attributes. What theologians sometimes refer to as his perfections. And what are they? Well, God 
is infinite. That means without limit, God has no limits of any kind within him. And the contrast is with us. God, the infinite creator, created a finite universe, heavens and earth, and in it, finite people, that is, limited people. We can't do everything. We can't be in relationship with everybody and everything. We are finite. God is eternal and immortal. God has no beginning and no end. He is not bound in time like we are. We, the Bible says, are like grass. Our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The wind blows over us and we are gone. Unlike God, we are finite, we have limits, and we don't last forever. God is omnipotent. Omni means whole or all. Omnipotent, unlimited power. God can do anything he wants to. Whereas we cower and hide whenever a hurricane or a tornado or a earthquake or lightning shows up. We are not powerful. We are rather fragile. God is omniscient. Once again, that word omni. All. God knows all things. Everything that happens anywhere in the entire universe, every single atom, every single moment, every single person, every single hair on your head is present to God. He knows all about it. He created it, and he sustains it with his word. God alone is completely self-sufficient, independent, and free. He can do whatever he wants. God alone is love. In fact, he defines love. He defines what truth is. He defines what beauty is. God is perfect in justice, in compassion, and mercy. That's why God's character, God's attributes, are often referred to as the perfections of God. All right, so you have there the picture of God, the creator. What about us in this finite, time-bound world? Well, the Bible says that God created everything good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. God created heavens and earth out of nothing. They're not part of him. They are separate from him. And it was all good. And he had a relationship, a good relationship, with everything. There's a beautiful image in Genesis of God walking in the cool of the morning with Adam and Eve in the garden. But we should always remember this distinction. It solves many issues and theological problems in the Bible, if you remember this distinction. God is creator, infinite, omnipotent, self-sufficient, completely other than us and his creation. And there is this void, this gap between, heaven, between God and his creation. We are not part of his substance, as some religions would claim. He does not need creation. Creation has no claim on him, no influence on him. They are completely distinct. But there's more. God and creation are distinct, but they are in relationship. He was in the garden. 
everything was good. But then, this is again in Genesis in chapter 3 and 4, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, listen to the lie of the serpent and they break their relationship with God. They break faith with God. They stopped trusting him. They stopped obeying him. They stopped putting their faith in him. And as they fall out of relationship with him, so does the world. Because God put human beings in charge of the world, holds them responsible for the world. In the New Testament we read, for the creation was subjected to frustration until the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This world and every human being are bound together. And just as we broke relationship with God and fell out of that relationship, the world went with us. And the world will not be restored until we are restored in our relationship. So there you have these distinctions. The creator-creature distinction, the distinction being between God who created all things and his creation. But you also now have another break, another distinction. The good God who created a good world now has to deal with a broken world. A world that is no longer in relationship with them. A world which is filled with sin, with evil, with darkness. There is a double void. The distinction between God and us and the distinction between that which is good and that which is not. By the way, if you think about that, that distinction and you think about what it took for Jesus to make that journey from infinite God, pure and good, to becoming a finite human being in a broken world, the more you think about that, the more extraordinary and wonderful Christ will become in your imagination. That's worth thinking about and praying about. So why am I talking about all this? Because these distinctions are the root of the idea of holiness. Literally, holy means set apart. Literally, set apart for God's work or God's business or for God's activity. God is a summary, a summary word, of all God's excellences, his perfections, his attributes. Everything that makes God who he is and what we are not. So to be unholy, to be unclean, to be defiled means to be out of relationship with God, not doing God's business, not knowing God, not being about what his will is. And so this helps us understand what Jesus is talking about here. The common or the ordinary is the broken world. Now the Pharisees had this idea that they were holy and that holiness was like this garment of cleanliness, you know, separate from the world, devoted to God. And it was like something that you would wear on the exterior, but it could get dirty. And so they were obsessed with cleanliness and rules and separation and not getting their hands dirty. 
But Jesus is challenging that. Jesus is saying the root problem is our broken relationship with God, the fact that we don't know God and therefore we are unholy. We do not participate in the life of God. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? It is not external things that are a problem. It is not how you dress or what you wear. It is not what you eat. It is not really even what you do. What matters is the inside. The Pharisees became obsessed with this idea of external cleanliness. The idea that holiness was also all about cleanliness of themselves and the things they touched and the people they were associated with. And, God is say, and Jesus is saying, that is not the point. The exterior, superficial things, material things, are not the issue. It's not outside you that's the problem. It is not your practices that are the problem. You know, when I was a seminary, a friend um, married an Englishman, uh, not an Englishman, an English woman. He was a man, she was a woman. And we all went from seminary to the wedding. And we were all the best men. So all the best men were Americans. And we came out after the service, and we were in the, the front of the church. And one of the guys had brought these uh, amazing uh, Cuban cigars. So, we, of course, we lit them all up. Uh, English cigars are very sad things. And we were happy. I mean, it was a great day. We were, we were celebrating. And this snooty Englishman and his wife came out of the church and loudly commented that real Christians don't smoke cigars, that we were a disgrace smoking outside the church. Now, the, the rest of the guys didn't say anything. Uh, in my experience, Americans are extremely polite when they're abroad, and they don't want to cause offense. But I'm not, at that time, I was not an American. I was an Englishman. And so I got in his face. Where in the Bible does it say not to smoke a cigar? And he was quite shocked. It was clear that he'd never really read the Bible. He wasn't really a church attender. He, he had never really thought about this or even knew any Christians. And it could have been a big, ugly confrontation at a beautiful wedding. But luckily, the other guys jumped in, and uh, he became fascinated. Americans are actually quite rare in England outside of London. And so he and his wife were fascinated. And uh, the last I saw of them, they were at the reception, uh, deep in conversation, him and two of the fellows. And uh, he had a large gin and tonic and seemed very happy. Who knows what happened to him? But to me, he represents what a lot of people think about Christianity. Real Christians don't smoke cigars. Real Christians don't drink. Real Christians don't do whatever it is. As if Christianity is all about what you do, all about your habits, all about eating and drinking, smoking cigars, goodness knows what. It's about being good, following the rules, doing the right thing. But Jesus is saying that is not the point. Why doesn't it matter what happens from the outside? 
For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. It doesn't go into their heart. The body, external things, are not the issue. They do not matter. They are superficial. What matters is the heart. And by the way, being a physical human being does not make you unholy. Jesus Christ became a human being. He ate, he drank, he went to the bathroom, he remained perfectly the Son of God. There was nothing that he did in his human life that made him anything less than holy, ever anything less than the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. It is not exterior, superficial things that defines you. It is what's going on inside. That's what matters. A good summary of what Jesus is saying here was spoken 55 years ago at the Lincoln Memorial, as you heard from Gary. Reverend Martin Luther King said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged by the color, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of the character. One of the reasons that Martin Luther King's words has such resonance was that he was a reverend. He knew his Bible. He knew the gospel. And he spoke and claimed the power of Jesus Christ's words to a nation that called itself Christian. And they knew it. Everybody knew it. It is not external, superficial things that defines you. It is not what you eat or drink. It is not your skin color or your sex or your nationality. It is not your haircut or your clothes. It is what's inside. That is who you are. That is what is important. And that's what God cares about. So what do you do about the inside? How can you fix our relationship with God? your relationship with God, my relationship with God? Well, there are two ways. You can do it with fear, or you can do it with love. We saw when we looked last week at the law, the fear of the law, the fear of prison, the fear of punishment, makes people do the right thing. Fear of rejection or punishment makes us treat people right. Think of the uh, hate speech uh, laws and codes on campus right now, attempts to make people do the right thing. Our fear of failure or getting fired makes us work like maniacs. Our fear of the police keeps us under the speed limit. Our fear of traffic wardens in Hoboken makes us worry about parking. It's all fear. The problem with fear is it's all based on surveillance. It's all based on the outside. As long as you're being watched, you have something to fear. But when that pressure is off, when you're by yourself, when circumstances change, then the true character is revealed. Apparently, faithful spouse goes on a business trip or has an affair at work, and boom. In corporations, suddenly the treasurer has a crisis, and they run off with their corporate funds. It happens in churches. 
overworked and exhausted pastors or ministry leaders suddenly do something crazy and the whole thing explodes. When I was growing up in England, um, there was a scandal in my neighborhood. We, we lived in the suburbs outside London where there were a lot of pilots. And this one pilot, he raised four daughters. And when the last one got to 16, he said, I am done. I've done my job. And he bought a boat and he ran off to the South Pacific. It was a scandal all the time I was growing up. Jury rigging your heart, trying to produce character by fear, is never going to work. Because it's all on the outside. It's all surveillance. It's fear of punishment. It's fear of a problem. So what to do? Well, Jesus is teaching his disciples here. He's teaching them this lesson that they need if they're going to do ministry. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Slander, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. The issue is the heart. That's what Jesus is driving to. Not exterior things, not codes of conduct or law, but the nature of the human heart, of your human heart. The London Times once asked its readers, what is wrong with the world today? Invited people to send in uh, letters or postcards. What is wrong with the world today? And famously, G.K. Chesterton, a Catholic writer, replied, Dear Sir, he's answering the question, what's wrong with the world? Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. He recognized that the problem was not out there in the world. That is not the source of unholiness. That is not the source of the broken relationship with God. The issue is inside, and it's not a group of people out there you can point at and blame. It is you. That is the central Christian insight. The problems of the world are your problems. You can't point at another group of people anywhere and say, as long as we got rid of them or educated them or controlled them, everything would be great. The history of the world proves that that is not correct. Jesus is saying right here that is not correct. The problem is you, and until you address yourself, the problem will remain. This, by the way, is the theme of the whole Bible. Starting in Genesis, where after the rebellion, Adam and Eve are cast out of God's presence, are cast out of the garden. David writes about this constantly. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The prophets, when they challenged Israel, repeated this again and again. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Every human being has the same problem. A broken heart. Because our hearts were created to be in relationship with our creator to love and worship, 
to be with God forever. And in the fall, that relationship was broken and every human heart was broken. You want to know what your problems are and my problems are and the problems of the world? We have broken hearts. We do not love God in the way that our Creator deserves. And so we try to find love and meaning and purpose any other way we can. This is Paul, who called himself the greatest of sinners, by the way. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue Paul? Who will rescue you? Who will rescue me? Who will rescue the world? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The solution is Jesus. How does it work? How does Jesus save us? How is Jesus the solution to the problem? Well, Jonathan Edwards, great American theologian, one of the first and greatest American theologians, had a wonderful essay called The Expulsive Power of New Affections. And in it he said, if you try to do the right thing, if you try by act of will to change who you are, you know, you create a to-do list or a set of promises of the New Year, New Year's resolutions, it won't work. There's a reason that you behave the way you behave, because you like it. Our habits are habits because they're comfortable, because they please us, because they meet our needs. And if we are left to our own devices, we're just going to go back to who we were in the beginning, who we've always been. What can make you change? You can't just remove a pattern of behavior or an attachment or something that has meaning to you you can't just remove it and deny it. You have to replace it. And what Jonathan Andwood said, the only thing that can change your heart is if you replace your love of something with love of Christ. The expulsive power of a new affection. When your heart belongs to Christ, there's no room for anything else. And so the solution to a broken heart the solution to all our issues is to fall in love again. To fall back in love with God through Christ. To recognize what Jesus did and why, why he did it and what the problem is. Look to this table for a moment. This is an ordinary table. You know, it's a fold-up uh, plastic thing from Walmart. That's ordinary cloth, ordinary cup, ordinary plate, ordinary bread, ordinary wine. The, these are common things. There's nothing divine about them. There's nothing godly about them. However, what do they represent? 
What do they point us to? What do they signify? Well, that ordinary bread is on that table because Jesus Christ told us to put it on that table because he said, I am the bread. And when you eat the bread, you are eating everything that I brought into the world, my body, that went to the cross for you. And what is that wine in the cup? That's his blood poured out on the cross so that we could be restored in our relationship with God. We could receive his life. So you have a common, ordinary table. But Jesus uses this to connect us with himself and with God. And when we come to this table, not in faith for the ordinary bread and the ordinary wine, but when we recognize Jesus' sacrifice here, when we put our faith in that sacrifice in the cross, when we put our faith in the love that is revealed by his sacrifice, then this is no longer common or ordinary. This becomes a holy place. This becomes the place where heaven and earth are rejoined, and we are rejoined, and our hearts are restored. To come to this table is an act of love, an act of faith, an act of confidence in God's goodness and delight in us. So you see the difference now. We are not defined by exterior things or by anything other than who our hearts belong to. That's what makes us holy as Christians. When you are in love with your Savior, with your Creator, then you and I become a holy people. That is, set apart as if God, the holy God, reached into the world and created a group of people not defined by the world, but by him. It's why we pray, thy will, not my will be done. In that prayer, we are declaring ourselves holy because we are now set apart for God's purposes, for God's use. We have become God's people, reconnected with him. This is the central teaching that Jesus brought. It is not about stuff. It is not about exterior things, superficial things. What is going on in your heart? Who does it belong to? And by the way, we're going to go to the table right now. As you do, I want you to ask that question. Who does your heart belong to? Is there anything else in the world that is claiming it right now? If there is, let it go. Offer yourself afresh. Receive the love. Be reconnected with your creator. Let's pray.